<clears throat> since about Sunday, it's been suggested that wisdom <clears throat> is available anywhere. There's no particular place for wisdom to arise. Moments of wise seeing can happen wherever we are. And even though <clears throat> on a retreat such as this, the sitting is, of course, and for good reason, emphasized and is a kind of crown jewel of the practice, it doesn't necessarily arise in sitting. And some of the most penetrating insights can arise anywhere, even in sitting. But some of the reason for emphasizing wisdom in action is a feeling that we get a bit um, overattached to the sitting at the expense of the rest of our life. It's not to stop sitting or to in any way diminish the value of sustained solitude and practice of this sort. Come back, come back for longer periods of time. But for no, no matter how long we sit, inevitably we get up and we do other things. And for most of us, perhaps all of us, we spend, mo we spend most of our life doing those other things. And so I think it would be helpful if we can see that the practice can be carried out even at its highest anywhere. And so we try to make a bit of an entree into that with food. The other day, there was the awareness of food, not only in the sense of learning how to eat in an intelligent way or a way that uh, doesn't harm the body, and in fact enhances it, but also seeing that it, it is possible to learn some of the main principles of Dharma practice while eating. The reason being is because these principles apply anywhere. Uh, and tonight I'd like to move to a, a realm that to some degree came up during the eating meditation, but I'd like to just speak to it on its own, and that has to do with the self. And once again, uh, encourage each one of us to really pay attention. I mean, I hope you always pay attention to talks, but uh, I'm going to suggest that just as we, the other evening, not only heard about some guidelines for doing eating meditation, but you were encouraged during the next day to actively put some of those uh, guidelines into practice. And then the following evening, if you recall, we then could have a dialogue about it. And I was encouraged by what we had. I was, didn't know what would come out of it. But there really were, was plenty of interest and you did investigate, and a lot of what was shared was quite alive, as far as I could tell. And so I'd like to try that again. This time it'll be about uh, working with the self, or anatta, no self, at least certain aspects of it, and in a very ordinary way, and then coming together tomorrow evening um, with the research that each one of us will have done for the remainder of this evening and tomorrow. And that can include the sitting. Some of what I say, in fact, all of it comes up in the sitting, but I would especially be interested in us seeing the occurrence of what we'll be talking about tonight as it comes up outside of the sitting. It's not to exclude the sitting, but for us to see that this realm is a rich area for us to learn about what I'm going to call selfing, just a convenient term. I don't know if it's how it stands in terms of English usage. Um, referring to the birth of this notion of I or mine in a given moment, and that this, the birth of this I and mine uh, being accompanied by attachment and very little or no awareness, mindfulness. I think you'll see what I mean as we move on. 
So this selfing is the, is the production of this sense of I in a given moment. If you recall, there were a few examples that came up after the eating meditation. Uh, one example was uh, feeling suddenly a, um, a sense of being divided from a person who is not eating with a proper um, food combination. And so that was seen by somebody who, let's say, has a view or a theory, whether correct or not is not the point right now, of what foods go together, what foods can be best eaten together from the point of view of health. And seeing somebody who's violated that and something that stimulating, perhaps a sense of self and separateness. Then another example was um, about to reach for a certain portion of food it almost being claimed as mine, and then somebody else reaching and getting it first. Heading it off, if you recall. Those of you who are here, remember that. And in that moment, the sense of I was born. The reason I'm saying selfing, making it a verb, is that it's more accurate, and the, the Buddhist teachings really apply that. Often we have nouns that are misleading. Because if everything is arising and passing away from moment to moment, then what is happening is selfing is created and then it ends because we're not always self-preoccupied or attached to the sense of I and mine or we'd go insane. I mean, it'd be no relief. Fortunately, we, have a, we take a break from time to time and we just are rather than I am this or I am that or I am not this or I am not that or I want to be this, or I want to be that. We just are, and it's some of our happiest moments are spent there. Okay. And so, strictly speaking, everything is process, and this is an I process, you could call it that, and we'll be tracking it a bit, some hints on how to track this I process, the arising and passing away of the sense of I and mine. that constitutes our life, a good deal of our life, and what some of the issues are involving it. First off, let me uh, sketch out a few a basic difference between uh, self-images and self-knowledge. Sometimes there's confusion on that, and if we get that clarified, maybe that will help us as we move on. Self-images are just pictures or even verbal conclusions that the mind produces about itself. They are literally imaginings. In other words, we create an image of who we are in a given moment. It could be something like a very beautiful car drives down the street and suddenly there's an image goes through your mind of you having that car and driving behind it and feeling all good if it's a car that you like. You're the kind of person that drives that kind of a car and the self feels very good. So that's a moment of selfing. The eye has just been, and there's no awareness. If there is awareness, it's very different. And I hope that can be made more clear in a, in a little while. And so we have a variety of images of ourself, pictures and verbal conclusions about who we are. They're varied, they're fragile, and they're a huge burden. And again, this is for each one of us to test, to see if this is so, to see if the weight of these images is so much so as to justify the word burden. Uh, we're on the line a good deal of the time with these images because it's like carrying around um, some kind of an ancient um, Ming Dynasty piece of porcelain or something. You know, it could break at any second. It's quite valuable, at least we think it is. And one wrong look, and we could drop it and it shatters. That shattering often comes about and is sometimes 
the creative times in our life, when certain images that perhaps we didn't even know we had are shattered through a trauma or a crisis, and we're forced to really look at ourselves. An image is just that. It's um, something that takes up a certain amount of time, and then it passes. And we have many self-images, or as we present ourselves inwardly to ourselves. And outwardly, through dress and behavior, we can communicate to the world that I'm this kind of a person. And sometimes these images can be uh, guidelines for a certain degree of development and growth, that as we perhaps internalize an image of being a very honest person, very high-minded, spiritual, kind, and we try to live up to it so that these particular imaginings, which come and go in the mind, are used to stir us on to uh, develop behavior that matches the image. And there's a range. Some people have images which are so totally out of line with how they're acting, and others it's closer. They're fantasies. The images are fantasized versions of ourself. Uh, to give you a sense, a little bit of what I mean, it's, uh, we see this in other realms externally, and maybe this will be helpful when we turn to ourselves internally and move the difference bet- to the difference between self-images and self-knowledge, or self-understanding. I don't know if it goes on so much anymore, but there used to be if you'd go to a movie theater, there would be some sample frames from the, the film that you're going to go in to see. There'd be, let's say, four or five frames, usually the most violent and the most erotic would be there. Okay, so then perhaps it attracts you and you go inside. Those images are outside. You go inside, and of course you sit through, let's say, two hours. An enormous range of different things go on, including those four sample shots. Now, the relationship of those four sample shots to the entire film can be incidental. Has that happened to you ever? You go in and the movie has very little to do with what drew you into it. Maybe there's one scene that lasts two minutes, but it got you in, and that's the purpose. Or when we graduate something or other, or have some kind of confirmation or marriage or bar mitzvah, there's... A moment of time is frozen. A photograph is taken. Sometimes it's touched up a little, you know. So the teeth are a little wider and the cheeks are a little rosier. And that one image then gets enlarged. Sometimes it's put on the mantle, on the metal or on the piano, or we tuck it into our wallet. And it stands for that person. In the meantime, the actual person goes through an incredible range of different personifications, almost from moment, not almost, from moment to moment, according to what we're learning here anyway. The first time I saw that was uh, quite shocking for me. Um, I had a cousin whose name was Uncle Harry, and when I was a child growing up, he was in World War II, and I had never met Uncle Harry, and he... He was out in the South Pacific fighting, but photographs were sent back, and there was one taken in Hawaii, and there was Uncle Harry, and he was Cousin Harry, sunburned in in an army outfit, looking incredibly happy and handsome, strong, just a notch below Clark Gable. And then one day, the real Cousin Harry walked into the door, and it was quite a jolt for a teenager. I mean, he was a nice guy, but it wasn't the same as that photograph. So there's was some relationship between that photograph and the real living, breathing cousin Harry, as in all the other cases. But there can be, but there can be quite a gap. Sometimes 
it may be that the reason for these images is exactly that, is to mask what is actually going on. Or is to have a few images that we approve of or disapprove of. Usually we have both. Very extremely idealized ones of ourselves and extremely negative ones of ourselves. These are just photos. Just a one, you know, one second of something frozen which represents the totality of what emerges from moment to moment. But we often uh, live in car- our living corresponds with what we've concluded is who we are. And often we need to protect these images very much. And they, they mask the moment to moment detailed unfolding, which is much more complex than any of these simplifications in the mind. And these can be a barrier to seeing this. Self-knowledge, I think one of the main functions of it would be to, see, to, see, to know the difference between images of what's happening and what's happening. Or is the totality of a person what we actually do, not just an image that represents what we do, that sort of advertises, I'm this kind of a person. But self-awareness or self-knowledge looks and sees from moment to moment what that being actually is, that each one of us doing it for ourselves. How do I actually live? Now, these self-images can be a tremendous barrier to that because they've done the work for us. We already know who we are. We can get a little lazy. And it's a kind of security, especially if you finally, finally decide that you have found yourself you found your real identity. You don't have an identity crisis anymore. That's where the big trouble begins. Or, put positively, that's when spiritual work really begins. Because it could be true. In other words, you could relatively settle on certain very positive, nice sense of yourself and the world agrees with you. They respond to you as that kind of a person. And that's just the beginning of the work. That's not the end. Because those images are are finitizations. They finitize a realm that isn't finite. They freeze it, block it out. Okay, the barrier to seeing is uh, the struggle between commitments that we have regarding who we think we are, we imagine that we are, and the actuality that can remain nameless that unfolds from moment to moment. And self-knowledge is getting to see that. And in the process, it may turn out that uh, these images crumble or are severely tarnished or turn out to be rather limited representations. And we begin to see how much energy and time and suffering are wrapped up in working with these images, living in accordance with them, identifying with them as being I and mine, attached to these conclusions about ourselves, which gives us a certain security from time to time, and also we suffer a great deal too. We have a lot of images that are negative, which are also not what we are fully. Just thinking of this for a moment, um, do you know Alfred E. Newman? Before Alfred E. Newman was uh, on, on the cover of Mad Comics, um, he wasn't known t- in the culture. My father had a photograph of a boy who looked like it was Alfred E. Newman, that kind of photograph. And he would go to, um, when well, we would go to Jewish weddings and bar mitzvahs, and everyone would start show, showing photographs of their children very proudly. <laughs> With me next to him, he'd take that one out and say, and here's my youngest. And, you know, people would just didn't know what to do. They would just <laughs> look at it, and usually it drove them to the hors d'oeuvre table, rather, you know. Because <laughs> uh, even chopped liver was preferable to, to knowing how to relate to something like this. this is your... Okay. So self-knowledge is taking a real look, and that's what we're doing. We're 
looking at the mind and at the body and at our lives as we live out our lives, trying to see from moment to moment what actually happens. How do we actually live? And it's not that we have to crush out these images. When they arise, they're not necessarily a source of trouble or suffering unless there's no wise attention, unless there's no awareness, there's no mindfulness, there's blindness, the contact is not there. There's, rather, there's no mindfulness with the contact. And then we get sucked into certain kinds of things. Because we're not always treated the, uh, in the way in which, in ways which support these images. Okay. Um, So self-knowledge, as we're using it here, is a broader term than self-image. It would include the examination of these images and their overall place in a person's psyche. And there is then a question, which um, in this practice is an important one, and that is, is it possible for a human being to live without these self-images, or let's say without the attachment to these self-images? Would we be insane if we didn't have pictures about who we are and what we are or verbal conclusions? These statements. Would we be totally mad? Would we just not know what to do? Would we be lost? Or is it quite the contrary? The letting go of these, the attachment to these images is is the letting go of a very destructive burden and enables us to, in a sense, begin to live for the first time in a very fresh way without being pushed around by these imaginings and having to be accountable to them, enabling us to just be who we are from moment to moment. I don't know. I mean, each one of us has to look at that. Okay. Another term I'd like to use to clarify is the term of attachment, which we use a lot around here. Everyone here does. I'd like to um, particularly make clear the difference between attachment and holding or using. Because when we move into uh, this notion of selfing in a few moments, or the capacity or the tendency of the mind to create this I, I and mine, and then get attached to it, what is this attachment we're talking about? Let's take this meditation cushion, which I'm sitting on right now, and I'm happy that I have it. It really enables me to sit longer and in a more comfortable way. And there are other positive things I can say about it. It's a nice color, and it's, it's good. I'm using it, and it's not a problem at all. It's, it's an asset in life for me right now to have this cushion. And let's say um, one of you invites me to... Why don't we all go and... Um, it was suggested to me that for my cold, a good thing would be a sauna. It sounds good to me. It really does, if that were possible. And say, great, let's go. And I pick up my cushion and we start going. And you don't think much of it. You just see me walking out. We get into the car and finally we wind up at this other place. And then suddenly we start taking our clothes off and I walk into the, the baths and I've got my cushion with me. I said, well, you don't need that. They have a bench. I said, yeah, but I, I, this is my cushion. I really... <laughs> Um, and I go to sleep with it <laughs> just the way we did with our teddy bear and our dollies and, and I go into the dining room with it no matter what I do there it is there's my green cushion you know like a cowboy wouldn't know who he is without his outfit uh, that's attachment and you know <laughs> And that complicates life, um, and it would probably create some suffering. (laughs) After the initial seemingly humorous response, after you saw that I was really serious, (laughs) I think you would start to see me in a somewhat different way (laughs) and treat me differently. In fact, it might be the end of the retreat. 
So the cushion is fine in its place. It can be used. It can be put down. It can be picked up, etc. Same with other things, watches and bells and other things as well, more intimate. Money, all kinds of things. The suffering doesn't come in from the object. It's not the existence of the object, but how we use it, how we relate to it. So the world in and of itself has got lots of useful things in it that can be enjoyed, valued, uh, and, and are part of our life. It's how we relate to it that causes the problem. So that's, the, that's how I'm using suffering, is holding on to something, attempting to sustain something. Okay. Let me use another term. I'm trying to sketch something out so that when we start to do our own individual inquiries between now and tomorrow, uh, it's not that you have to follow exactly anything that's been said here, but you'll get more of a feeling for what I'm, what's, what's being suggested. I'd like to use a very strong term. Use the word addiction. I'd like to talk about what may be the strongest addiction that we have and the most dangerous and perhaps the root addiction. Whereas when we hear words like addiction, we think of drugs, alcohol, food, now it's being there. A lot of things are added to it. Work. I heard recently of another one called love addiction. Many of you heard of that one? It's uh, people who have the need to constantly keep falling in love. Addicted to that over and over and over, no matter how many times. In a certain way. I mean, we use the word love, perhaps it's in quotes, I don't know. But anyway, there apparently are people who have problems along these lines and they're talking to each other. Did I mention all the major ones? Food, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes. And they cause suffering for us. But you could say that the the root addiction, one expression of it, is this uh, seemingly endless need of the mind to describe itself to itself. Have any of you noticed the mind doing that over the past few days? constantly talking to itself about what it used to be and what it was and what it will be. And, you know, if it does this, it will be that. And if it sits, uh, goes to the late night sitting, then, it'll, you know, it'll be a good yogi. And if it doesn't, uh, and memories and, oh, yes, I used to be that way. And, but I'm not going to be that way anymore because that is no good. I'm going to be with the help of Vipassana meditation. Endlessly describing itself. Some of it seems very clearly reassuring itself that I'm all right, I will be all right. I'm a this or I'm a that. Seriously, have you noticed that? I think it's strong enough to use the word addiction. And again, it has to do with this attachment to I and mine. The other addictions, in a sense, flow out of, the, out of that primary one. Once we create the illusion, then we're going to get to the next notion, the illusion of a solid, inherent, unchanging, continuous, substantial self, which each one of us believes that we are, even if we talk as if we don't, it's so deep and it's so rooted in our subconscious. Once we have that sense of separateness, that sense of I am, and I am this and I am that, that's when all the that's where all the mischief comes out of that. The need to protect that I, the need to view it in regard and in comparison to everyone else who's also doing who are also doing the same thing. So there are all of these seeming entities that are working very hard because they're very fragile, so that any information and action is potentially damaging to the stability of that seeming entity. It's not an entity, at least in terms of this teaching. It's a process. Selfing is a process. It happens. There's no fixed something that just is like that. And however that process gets going, when we come to believe that this self is inherent, 
and solid, we create a lot of suffering for ourselves because so many of the things that happen then refer back to that self and have implications in terms of insulting it, endangering it, flattering it. And it's endless, all the different things that we do. And it's what, it, what you might call the biggest burden that we're carrying. Okay. Let me... Uh, we've all, or I think many of us, have heard the, the term anatta or no-self. And sometimes it's gotten described as Buddhists believe that there is no self, that people don't have any self. Buddhists think that um, there's no ego. And what the whole point is to just become egoless. The ego is no good. We have to get rid of it, annihilate it. And that's not quite the meaning of an anatta. It's, it's really a, a very subtle teaching. And it's not really a belief. It's not something, a doctrine to be believed in, but rather a, a kind of a yogic guide for us to look and to see the process of I and to help us with, with learning how not to identify with what comes up. Okay. Probably a, a, a one useful way of talking about it is not that there's no self, but that there's no inherent self. Or there is a conventional self. And sometimes this puts people at ease. People are really worried about what you're going to lose if you do this practice. The conventional self exists. It is relatively true. I mean, each one of us, we're ma- I'm manifesting it right now. And the ego exists. There are periods of time in practice or Let's just limit it to practice where, let's say, the ego is not there. It dissolves, but it comes back. Moreover, the ego is very useful. It's part of nature. It's there for a reason. It helps us. It's a great evaluator. It helps us live skillfully. And a a strong ego is an asset. The problem is, is that we get egotistical about the ego, if you know what I mean. The ego in in itself is a set of functions that are useful and necessary and enable a person to be effective in life. But when we attach to it, identify with it, think that this is who I am, then we have a lot of trouble on our hands. What I mean by the the self having having relative existence, but not inherent existence, maybe that can be illustrated by another set of examples outside of our, our mind, Say you're watching TV and it's a monster show and this horrible, frightening monster appears on the TV. You're watching it late at night. There's no one else home and you get caught up in it and you get really frightened, terrified. You know, any movie that works, that's what it does. It gets you to identify and otherwise it wouldn't be much of a movie. So you're in it. Okay, that monster doesn't have inherent reality. By that I mean you could take an axe and start breaking open the TV set. You're not going to find it. It's not there. Which is not to say that it has no reality. The monster was a set of images flashing on a screen which had a certain effect, so it has some relative reality. But it's not inherently real. Or it's like a dream. We dream that um, we're being chased by a tiger and the tiger is about to devour us. We break out into a sweat and palpitations. We are really terrified. If somebody were to do a physiological test of us at that moment, we would have all the signs of somebody who's frightened, probably as frightened as somebody who's being chased by a real tiger. And then we wake up great relief. And we see, oh, there was no tiger. That, that was just in my mind. Okay. That tiger didn't have inherent reality. 
but it had relative reality. It had some re- reality that, based on the particular causes and conditions that existed at that moment, were sufficient to create a certain effect in us, a certain reaction in us. And so the whole point is just this understanding what kind of reality it had. If we started to search under the rug and tear the house apart to see where the tiger was, we wouldn't find it because it's not there. But it's not to say that the tiger doesn't exist at all. It does have some existence. It has a relative existence, relative being literally just as it was described. Now, our conventional self is like that. It does have some existence. And it gives us some of the color in life. Our personalities vary. Uh, Sometimes if you take this teaching of anatta too literally or don't understand it, it would seem as if, let's say if we all got enlightened, uh, then we'd be totally interchangeable. I don't mean at the the level of enlightenment, but suddenly we would just be uh, homogeneous. There'd be no differences. But that isn't so. Um, I spent about almost a month, uh, a little less than that, with there was a meeting of about 20 or 25 of the, all of the Zen masters in Korea. They called a conference to kind of evaluate how things were. And let's assume that all or most of them were to some degree wise, opened up people, even enlightened. The range of personalities and temperaments and tendencies was extraordinary. There were very introverted, quiet ones. There were others that were very, you know, uh, garrulous and sociable and loud. And just like everyone else, there was quite a range of personalities. And so that level of reality stays. There may be a very different relationship to it, lighter. And no confusion thinking that I am these manifestations. But that's the vehicle that we express ourselves through, as through the same body that's a given height and a given weight and so forth. So the anatta is saying that. Okay. We tend to mistake the self for being really real. It's a little bit like Uh, mistaking that tiger for being real or that monster for being real. It isn't really real. It doesn't have inherent being or its own being. It doesn't exist on its own side, from its own side, with complete continuity. It is not as substantial as we think it is. And yet, it is there and it has tremendous consequences. Okay. The addiction is the incredible preoccupation with this realm in the mind. Let's get to what I mean by selfing now, and maybe this can uh, lead to a very practical pointing out as to, to some degree, how our um, observational work can go on between now and tomorrow. Of course, one of the main ways was to, would be to really see how much the mind describes itself to itself and what that's all about. That would be, I think, invaluable just to begin to see that at work. Okay. I'm using the term selfing for something like this. The Buddha at one point said that um, being born is suffering. And on one level, what was meant is that the physical birth, that is, to be born is painful, to come through that process. Moreover, to be born, meaning that is to come into, into a body, means that you're subject to all that bodies are subject to. If you weren't there, you wouldn't suffer, but you are there. There is this presence, which is sub- subject to, probably have heard this, sickness, old age, death, the weather, all kinds of things. So, being born, the process of being born is suffering, and then because it puts you in the place where suffering happens, bodies are liable to suffer. That's their nature. Everyone's body is liable to suffer. But there's another meaning for it, and I think this other meaning will, is, will be helpful for us, and that is the birth that is being pointed to is the birth of the I. 
and the suffering that's being pointed to is the coming into being of the I, attaching to I and mine. The arising of I and mine with attachment. Grasping on to anything that happens and taking it to be I and mine. The body itself, feelings, thoughts, ideas, images, countries, flags, foods. Anything can be grasped onto as being me and as being mine, at which point we are tremendously liable to suffer. And the Buddha also said that happiness is letting go of the I notion. So it's the birth of this I from moment to moment. It's a a process. Is something that can be observed very carefully and seen. When there's awareness accompanying this I process, then it isn't birth in the sense in which the Buddha was using it. Birth meaning birth liable to suffering. Let me give you uh, a very, just an example of this process and how you can work with it. This happened to me here at IMS uh, a while back, and it's a trivial event. I mean, just a simple event, but you know how sometimes something happens, and that's where you really learn something. That that particular event is where, oh, I, I get it now. It's happened to you millions of times before, but suddenly in that moment, something intuitive is learned uh, which to some degree continues on with you. I was walking through one of the halls and someone was coming in the opposite direction with a tray full of food and there was a door and I opened the door and you know, mostly we don't make eye contact here. I didn't know this person. And so I, being a gentleman, and also this person had a tray, you know, opened the door, the person walked through, and our eyes just slightly met, and there was a smile of thank you, just a small smile of thank you. And apparently that thank you registered, and then there was the arising of an eye claiming it, grasping onto it. I'm the kind of person who opens the door for people who are coming through with their trays and need help. And there was this slight feeling of smugness or what a wonderful person I am or how considerate I am or something was very positive and it was, it was I and mine. It was my feeling. In other words, at that moment, I was born. I was doing larrying at that moment. Okay. But, the, and here's where it was a full thing for me, Mindfulness saw that, and it was just hilarious. It saw the ego cashing in on anything. You know, just it, no matter what it is, it just was. It was another occasion for it to just, yeah, I know, I'm a great guy. I opened the door for this person, um, but it was seen as it happened, compared to the countless times when it wasn't seen. This time it was. So the whole process was conscious. And that's bringing practice, that's bringing uh, wise attention into this process of where the I arises, is experienced exactly as it is, and it's not dangerous, it can't bite you that way. It's what some of the ancients called taking the poison out of the fangs of the snake. The snake still has fangs, but you know, it shoots it out at you, but there's no poison anymore because there's awareness. The reason being, now maybe not in that exact situation, there may not have been a whole bunch of suffering, but that was strengthening a process. In other words, this solidification of I and mine, which brings an enormous amount of suffering. I think the key point is that when you are fully aware, you can't re- you're not identifying with what you're watching, with what's there. You can't be totally mindful and identify at the same time. You don't have to use language like disidentifying. Because to be totally attentive snaps that seeming link. When there's no mindfulness, then the identification arises with all the consequences that that has. This is my body. 
This is my mind, this is my idea, my feelings. Everything. And so, the practice of developing continuous mindfulness can save us a tremendous amount of suffering. It's not as if we have to cut off the... uh, You hear this talk and now there's never going to be any uh, egocentric productions coming out of the mind. That would be impossible. It's quite natural for, for minds to... They're like secretions, you know, it seems. Very often, I, mine, this is mine, I'm this. Okay. But when there's awareness, it's not dangerous. When the mindfulness is with it as it arises, we see it for what it is. And it's a, li- it's a lighter event. It's not necessarily trouble. When we don't, when there is no mindfulness, or there's ignorance, or there's blind contact with the object, then we get sucked into a series of events which may go something like contact and a very pleasant or unpleasant feeling, and then either um, an attachment or an aversion to that pleasant or unpleasant feeling, and then the I becoming, claiming that as I or mine. I'm very happy, I'm very unhappy, I want this, I want to hold on to this, I want to get rid of this. And then that whole drama, which is full of suffering, is created and has tremendous potential for getting stronger because every time we do that, we strengthen that. And every time we're aware, we begin to weaken that process. A lot of what the Eightfold Path is about is depriving this birth of I, this I process of nourishment so that, it doesn't, so that the danger of self-centeredness becomes less and less. It still gets thrown out, but it's, no, it's not a problem because there's wisdom in the contact with it as, it as it appears in consciousness. Now, some of you are rather new to the practice and if this is not so clear or it's confusing, don't worry about it. It's a very important point. It's probably the most radical and important point in the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha at one point gave the most concise sense of what the teaching is, which is under no conditions cling to anything that's as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So you can get very calm and develop all kinds of beautiful, blissful states, states of unity, whatever you like, peace, But if this is not seen through, in other words, it'll be alternated with periods of a lot of suffering because of that illusion and the ultimate separateness that comes from it, duality that comes from it. Let me see if I can make that a little bit more vivid for you and then... Okay. Some years ago, again in a, in Korea, I was at a Zen monastery practicing, and it was for a few days. And a number of the monks were very unzen. They were very sloppy and sat with crooked postures. They, didn't, they weren't anything like what Alan Watts said they were going to be. <laughs> and, you know, they'd go off in a corner and whisper and they ate too much. And, and the worse they were, the more depressed I got. And it was a four or five, it was just a short retreat. We were all sitting together. And there was three or four of them. They just were, like, I guess, friends and it was sort of a dramaturgical flaw, you know, and here I traveled all these thousands of miles to gain the Zen experience. And here are these sloppy people tripping over each other and messing up my fantasy. Till at one point, I broke out in such laughter when I saw what was happening that I had to leave the hall. I mean, it was just, 
I saw that absolutely nothing had changed since I was 10 years old. Nothing. With all the different courses and books and techniques, the same process was going on. When I was 10 years old, I would identify with the New York Yankees. And when they would win, I'd feel eight feet tall. They were, the, they were really, I don't know what they are now, but they used to win a lot then. And I would listen to these games like my life depended on it, because it did. You know, my inner life. I was so glued to that because if the Yankees won, I won. And if Joe DiMaggio hit a home run, I hit a home run. It was that kind of identification with what they were doing. And I remember once my father uh, laughing. My father can be funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was really down because the Yankees had lost. And he came in and started to laugh and he said, don't take it so seriously. Well, you don't say that to a child. You know, it's like this was this was the stuff that was really important in life. You know, the New York Yankees, and he's concerned with big things, the nature of reality, or World War II, or something like that. Uh, and I, I didn't like it. I got very even more sullen. He said, "Why are you taking it so seriously? So what if the Yankees lost? You're all right. Everything is fine. Everything is okay. But it just went in one ear and went out the other ear, and then." Then he said, uh, which is the ultimate disrespect. And he, my father grew up in Russia, so came here as, uh, in, in his late teens, so it is, doesn't have the full American assimilation. He said, look, let me tell you how I see this baseball that you're so excited about. I see these grown men, you know, they're ranging from in their 20s to their 40s, and they have these knickers on, you know, these funny suits, and pieces of wood, and someone throws this piece of leather, leather at them, they throw it, and then with this piece of wood, they hit it, and it goes somewhere, and thousands of people go insane. You know, they start running around. So I look at it, and, you know, hundreds, millions of dollars are spent on it. It seems nuts to me. I don't know what all the fuss is about. For a few moments, it sort of, the bottom almost fell out, you know, because... <laughs> You mean that's what I'm getting caught up in? I mean, it's just, it's true. I mean, there's just nothing going on here. This is not Buddhist empty. This is total empty. But nonetheless, the identification was very, very strong. And what I saw in Korea, there was, we keep, we, we like, we use up certain identifications, certain attachments of I and mind to things external to us because apparently we don't trust that we're all right as we are. And so we let go of this and we pick up another one. And we let go of that and we pick up another one. Right now, perhaps we're all, it's not the New York Yankees, but it's Vipassana or whatever. Again, the solution is not to quit Vipassana, but to not make it into some kind of an externalized identity and form, identify with it and use it as a place to hide out in. But rather to use the teachings of Vipassana to see through this whole process. That would be the true use of it. And, and this is where all the spiritual teachings say, and certainly this one as well, it's in the letting go of all of these false identifications, identifications which seem to give us strength, seem to give us encouragement, um, seem to make life more worthwhile. It's in the letting go of them that that which is truly wonderful, let's say, Nirvana, ultimate truth, God, liberation, is possible. We can't hold on to this level. Again, it's the attachment. You can be a New York Yankee fan, if anyone is here. That isn't what will hold you back. But rather, it's the I and mine that gets hooked on it, which the fixation holds us down to a certain level, so that one has to let go of that to move on. It's, in a way, not a complicated idea. It's like if you're in, in Massachusetts and you're at the borderline, you want to go to Rhode Island, and the person says, okay, just step over the line and you'll be in Rhode Island. Isn't that where you want to go? I do, yes. And you kind of hold your foot in Massachusetts, put the other foot in Rhode Island, start dragging it, say, well, now lift up the other one. And if you put them both in Rhode Island then you're all set. You're in Rhode Island. You say you want to come to Rhode Island. Yeah, but in order to do that, I have to let go of Massachusetts. 
well, do you want to go to Rhode Island or do you want to sort of be in between, caught, or stay in Massachusetts? No, I want to go to Rhode Island. Well, you're sort of in Rhode Island, but not really. <laughs> One image that has been used, and I would... perhaps to cover all of this, and maybe we can see some of this tonight and tomorrow, is that all of this selfing is the extraordinary burden, the imagery and the presentations to ourselves. It's uh, the extraordinary burden that we humans carry. And one way of looking at it, which has been talked about in many different ways, This example has been used by the ancients. It's as if somebody is carrying a huge rock on their back and someone else says, why don't you put that down? It's very heavy, isn't it? That rock, let's say, would be all of these images, this seemingly solid self concern that we have. And the person listens to teachings. Look, if you put that down, you'll feel a lot lighter and everything is going to be a lot easier. Look at me. I don't have it. I can just walk around and do whatever I want. And the person hears it, but is afraid to put it down. Because then they're worried about, what would I have if I put this down? And whether it comes through hearing teachings over and over, or through, probably more likely, through exhaustion, finally realizing the utter futility of carrying around all of this self-presentation to ourselves and to others and seeing just what it amounts to, the tremendous amount of energy that it takes to keep protecting ourselves, the fact that it isn't really secure, it doesn't provide us with security at all. And if there's any security, it's in the letting go. It's It's the wisdom of insecurity. And so the path is, a lot of what we're doing here is watching the mind and letting go. Watching us get attached to this and pushing that away and letting go. And it's in the letting go that a process is released that has a dynamic force behind it that really... uh, is alive. And no one is being asked to let go blindly as an order or something for you to subscribe in or a belief. I think the healthiest way to approach it is step number one is, is to begin to understand what attachment is. Don't be in a hurry to let go. If you like your self-images, great. I'm not telling you to get rid of them. Then see what they are and see what it's all about. See if there are any consequences to solidifying around this I, to holding on to the I and mine. In that way, the letting go can come out of understanding, which is more trustworthy than if you should do it out of a belief. And I'm not sure it can really be done in any convincing way. Okay, what I would suggest for tonight and tomorrow is be particularly uh, sensitive to small ways in which the eye surfaces and claims something. And just be real sensitive to that process of selfing. And then tomorrow uh, we can come together again and see what we've learned. One of my teachers uh, gave me a gift of calligraphy and I've looked at it, I would say, thousands of times. It's about what we're talking about here this evening. And all it says is, don't make anything, exclamation point. We have a few moments of silence.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.